Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. And here we have show number 12. Did you see the amazing new artwork we have up today? It was created by a gentleman by the name of René Aigner, and you can see more of his work by following the links on our website. So, sit back, put your feet up, hmm, make a drink, let's listen to some stories. In honour of our fantastic art from Mr Aigner, we have a story called Tengu Mountain, by Gregory Frost. Gregory is the author of eight novels, including Shadowbridge, Lord Toffet and Fitch's Brides, and well over 50 short stories of the fantastic, including dark thrillers, historical fantasy and science fiction. His novelette, No Others Are Genuine, was a 2014 long fiction finalist for the Bram Stoker Award. You can find out more about his other current projects on the Triple F page, or visit his website at gregoryfrost.com. The story is read for you by the author himself, which I personally really enjoy, since an author's perspective on a narrative is almost always perfect. So, here we have it. Enjoy. Tengu Mountain by Gregory Frost Anto met his fate in the form of a priest while he was climbing up the mountain to his aunt Sakura's house. Ando nearly stepped on him. The priest lay across his path like a log that had rolled down the mountainside and come to rest where the path cut between two outcroppings of stone, and at first that was what Ando thought he was seeing. The priest's orange robes looked like leaves or peeling bark in the light of the setting sun. Not until he stood over him did Ando notice the closed eyes, the ridiculously long nose, the gray beard the small black token cap topping that slumbering face. From the robes and cap he knew he was looking at a Yamabushi priest, an outlaw monk. His hand went to his sword and he glanced around warily. Had the priest been struck down? Had some irate military governor sent samurai after him? But no blood stained his robes and his head seemed securely attached. Really, it looked as if he'd just stretched out and gone to sleep with the rocks keeping him from rolling away. Meanwhile, the sun was setting, and Endo fretted that he still had a long climb ahead of him. He didn't want to leave the path. Besides, if the monk was dead, then there was nothing to do, and if he was asleep, it was best to leave him alone. Hefting his pack, Endo raised his foot up over the priest. A hand shot up from the robes, clutched the sole of Endo's sandal, and propelled him into the air. He pinwheeled high around his pack, only to land on his feet, although not through any skill of his own. Now he was above the priest, but the priest hadn't moved. His eyes remained closed, and his hand had vanished into the orange folds of his robe again. Sir, Andrew said. The priest didn't stir. Now what do I say, he wondered. He scratched behind his ear. 
Across the valley, the sun had almost disappeared behind the ridge. There was no time to puzzle this out. Thank you, said Ando, and he turned to go. Behind him, a voice replied, I stop you from stepping on me, and rather than apologizing, you tell me thank you. That's uncommonly strange. Ando swung about. I would never have stepped on you. Indeed, the priest sprang up like a sapling that had been tied back until the rope snapped. And I suppose you'd never pour boiling copper down my throat, either. Ando blinked. It would never have occurred to me. Boiling copper? The priest gestured dismissively. I've had worse. Evil Shugos sending their samurai to cut us all down. You, young man, should not be traveling up this mountain alone with night setting in. This from a man who was sleeping on this mountain with night setting in. In fact, the monk continued, it's rare to see humans here at all. He squinted at Ando suspiciously. I happen to be traveling to the top of this ridge below Mount Karami. My auntie lives there, and I've come to spend the rest of the year with her, so I won't be by myself for long, provided I stop jabbering with you. He hoisted his pack. Taught you manners like this in the city, did they? You must have a couple of tanuki for parents. My... Ando went stiff with anger. My parents are perfectly decent. I'm done conversing with you, you vagabond. I should turn you into the local shugo and let him have you, boiling copper and all. He stormed up the path. Ando's anger fueled his pace. His aunt's house couldn't be too much farther now. He stared through the darkness into the trees above for some sign, some light to guide him. He had been but a child the last time he'd seen it. The path snaked from right to left, at which point Ando stopped dead in his tracks because the priest stood ahead of him, leaning on a strange staff as if he'd been there for hours. Ando was compelled to look back the way he'd come. Perhaps there were two such monks playing a trick upon him. The priest said, I wish to apologize to you, young man. No business had I casting aspersions upon your good family, who have clearly raised you well. Please allow me to accompany you, not because you require my assistance. No, 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 no. I'm sure you would find your way, but allow me because I know these mountains better than anyone living here and can navigate this path in the blackness of a moonless night. How do I know you won't lead me right off the edge of a cliff out of spite? The priest tugged at his nose. Then let me follow after you to guard your back. What from? Who can say? I suppose I really cannot stop you unless I want to walk backwards the rest of my journey. It would be difficult. But keep your distance, Ando warned. I don't want you pushing me over the edge either. Shaking his head, he continued on his way. He glanced back now and again, but the priest came no closer. Who is your aunt? the priest called. Aunt Sakura, replied Ando. She lives in a fine house at the top of this ridge. My parents call it her summer home, although she lives here year-round since my uncle died, and that was long ago. She's my father's sister, and my mother does not get on with her. I haven't visited since I was six. Fourteen years absent. Yes, uh, how did you know that? Looking around, he paused. I guessed, young warrior. <laughs> I'm no warrior. I'm, that is, I'm a, a painter. Soon Ando glimpsed lights through the trees above. There, he cried, and hurried on. The path was only a vague stripe now. Finally, he stood at the open gate below a plateau on which perched a wide house sparkling with lanterns. There it is, you see, said Ando. This is your aunt's house. The priest sounded dismayed. Quite astonishing, isn't it? Astonishing, yes. And so are you, young man. You know my aunt, do you? Not as such. Politeness overcame Ando's better judgment, and he asked, You wouldn't care for a meal? You've come all this way with me. Surely you must be hungry. Hunger, said the priest, is a concern of the body. I fast on the mountain often to deny such concerns and to see beyond the surface of things. I mustn't be tempted. No, I must bid you farewell here. He edged close to Ando, tilted his strangely carved staff, and removed one of the iron rings that hung from its tip. Ando couldn't see how this was done. Here's something for you, and he handed him the ring. Ando thanked him and tucked the ring into his pack. The priest said, If you need anything, I'm always on the mountain somewhere. Then he strode back down the path. The gloom swallowed him up. Ando muttered, If you ask me, you've been fasting too much. He hefted his pack again and entered the gate. Despite being his father's age, Ando's aunt Sakura was as beautiful as he remembered. Dressed in a scarlet kimono, she embraced him at the top of the steps. She smelled of flowers wet with dew, so clean and fresh that Ando nearly swooned. Dearest nephew, why, you've become a man. Has it been so long? Very long, auntie. Only now I was telling a fellow traveler that it had been fourteen. Another traveler on this mountain at night? She peered past him into the dark. And you didn't invite him in? I did, but he declined, as if I wanted to lead him into a trap. She rolled her eyes. Who was this fellow of so little discernment? A monk, a Yamabushi I met, tall with a big bulbous nose and very impertinent. His aunt stepped away, her fingers at her lips. You saw him? 
She rushed forward and hugged Ando tightly. He thought he must invent more reasons for her to hug him so. My poor dear nephew, you've no idea how lucky you are. Another hour, surely no more, and it would have been over for you. What do you mean, over? There are creatures living on this mountain, Ando. They lurk hereabout, and you never want to meet them. They're fierce goblins called Tengu. They can disguise themselves as anything, including priests. They steal and eat children. They have big snouts, too. That one was surely a Tengu lord, and if he'd had his way, he would have walked you right off the path to your death. Ando thought, so as I suspected. He said, he offered to lead me, but I refused him, Auntie. I made him walk behind. She clutched him again. He could feel her body's hills and valleys against him. That decision surely saved your life, nephew. Of course, he will not enter here. His kind cannot enter a house unless the owner welcomes them. He could never have come in, and you would have known him for what he was. Ando rested his chin on his aunt's shoulder. How close a call he'd had! He shivered. The goblin had lain in wait for him, and if he hadn't been so cautious, it would have killed him. Eagerly he drank the hot sake his aunt served to ward off the chill of death that had followed him up the mountain. It was the best sake he'd ever tasted. Aunt Sakura had arranged a spare room for him. A candle burned in a paper globe in one corner, making the mat seem warm and friendly. The screens of the far wall opened onto the central courtyard of her huge house. Comfortable and a little drunk after his meal, Ando sat and massaged his tired feet. As he drew his parchments and brushes from his pack, something clanked on the floor. It was the iron ring the priest, the goblin, had given him. He picked it up. Its surface, he saw in the light, was engraved with odd characters. He started for the door, but stopped with his hand raised to slide the panel aside. It would only upset his aunt further that he'd accepted a gift from the goblin. Better to keep it to himself. Tomorrow he could go off and bury it someplace. He blew out the lantern, fell back on his mat, and went to sleep. Exhaustion, the mention of goblins, and the befuddlement of sake must surely have worked together on him that night. Ando dreamed that the door of his room slid silently open, and a hulking, twisted silhouette shambled inside. As though blind, it sniffed about in the dark, up and down the walls, moving ever nearer. Ando squirmed, but seemed to be anchored in place. He could not rise from his mat. Strange figures flocked to the doorway. Huge eyes followed the progress of the monster around the room. The monster snuffled to rest above him. He had to tilt his head back to see it. And when he did, it grinned at him, then at the creatures in the doorway. Here's my feast, it announced in a voice that screeched like an old iron hinge. Then it reached down to pluck out his eyes. He sat up with a yelp. It was morning. No goblins surrounded him. Ando knew the monster had been a dream. He held his head. Ah, oh, no more sake for me, he muttered. The door slid suddenly open, and O flinched and reached for his sword, but no monster greeted him. It was a young girl. She had a doltish, ashen face. Her black hair hung limply about her dull eyes. Monotonously, she spoke. Good morning, young master. Your aunt instructs me to bathe and dress you for breakfast. Bathe and dress me? Yes. The girl shuffled in and, as he climbed from the mat, took his arm and led him down the hall and into the bathroom. The air swirled with steam. He marveled at the size of his aunt's house. The girl undressed him and helped him into the tub. For all the hot steam, the water was hardly warmer than the air, not uncomfortable, but not hot as it appeared. The girl knelt and began to scrub him with a brush. Hey! he cried, lunging away from her. He put a hand to his shoulder and looked at his back. Trying to skin me, are you? I am sorry, she said. Please let me try again. Reluctantly, Ando moved within her reach. She began scrubbing him much more gently. A better-fed man would not have been injured so easily by the bristles of my brush, she commented. It's good you came here. A few weeks with your aunt, and you'll be much healthier. He glanced back at her, but the girl stared past him as if lost in thought. After bathing, she gave him a clean yukata to wear, then led him through the house to the kitchen, where his aunt Sakura knelt awaiting him. If anything, she was lovelier this morning. I trust you slept well, nephew. He thought about his terrible dream, but dismissed it. She should not be burdened with such a thing. I did, thank you, he said. It's very peaceful here. You miss the noise of city life, people on the streets at all hours. I'm used to the noise, it's true. After a while, you no longer notice it's there, until you leave it. Often this is so, she agreed. You must lose a thing in order to recognize it. Now, however, you must come and eat. You look dreadfully thin from your journey. We must fatten you up. That's what the girl in the bath said to me. Did she? 
Yes, although she seemed a very dull creature. I keep her own as a favor to her relatives. He flexed his shoulder. She scrubbed me like a dirty pot. His aunt frowned. I will speak with her. I don't want problems for my dearest nephew. She led him into another room where the screens were open to the courtyard. On the low table were small bowls of rice, seaweed, fish, eggs, and an assortment of sauces and condiments. It was a feast. You were hungry? His stomach rumbled. Yes, but who else is eating? Only you, dear. I was up quite early and have eaten already. But so much. Well, consume what you can. Later you can tell me all about your art. She patted his cheek, smiling, then bowed and withdrew. After his meal, Ando went off for a constitutional. He hoped to find a view that would inspire him. Great painters, he thought, must be inspired. Once he found inspiration, he would return with ink and brushes and compose great art, for that was what artists did. He intended to return home in the winter with work so beautiful that his parents must find a master to teach him. The mountains seemed to be etched with paths, as if hundreds of travelers wandered here all the time, yet he encountered no one. It made him wonder if the Tengu his aunt described had frightened everyone away, or eaten them. But the day was far too pleasant for goblins, and he had his sword in any case. Soon Ando lost sight of his aunt's house. As he walked, he idly spun the monk's iron ring around one finger. Slowly he became aware of a distant roaring. He followed the sound working his way down a rocky slope, which required him to stop playing with the ring and pay attention to his footing. The noise was still some distance off when he came to the edge of a cliff. He stood on a ledge that was nothing more than a plate of rocks surrounded by brush. From it he could look out and down upon the graceful waterfall that had drawn him there. It cascaded past him from high above, disappearing in a great cloud of mist far below. Here, he thought, was his inspiration. Capture this view with brush and ink, and he would surely rank among the greatest of all artists who had ever been. There remained only the matter of the iron ring. He couldn't imagine any place where he could throw it farther than this. Yet he hesitated. The lovely filigree of the metal teased his sense of beauty. These goblins must be remarkable metal workers. Nevertheless, he could not keep a goblin's ring. It might have attracted that monster. Maybe the creature had been sniffing around in search of it, but no, that was imaginary. A sake dream. He shook his head. The best thing to do was dispose of the ring before he could change his mind. With that, he cocked his arm and flung it away, except that he threw nothing but air. He stared in disbelief at his open, empty hand stretched before him, fingers wide. Then something clinked beside his ear, and the tip of a staff came to rest upon his shoulder. Rings dangled from it. Ando spun about. The priest stood right behind him. With the staff, he had snared the ring even as Ando threw it. The priest raised the staff, and the captured ring slid down into his right palm. "'You are certainly an evil creature,' said the priest, "'to cast away so potent a magic as this. "'You don't want it? Does it burn you to touch it? "'It would burn a demon!' He waved it between them, then whacked Ando on the nose with it. Ando jumped away from the blow, then realized there was nowhere to jump to. He had just stepped off the ledge, and threw himself desperately onto the plate of stone. I'm rethinking my opinion of you, the priest commented. You try to cast away gifts, then you try to fly after them. Neither the behavior of a harmonious being nor a particularly rational one. So what are you, then? Ando's heart slid from his throat back into his chest while the priest blathered on. Furious, he sprang up and whipped his sword out. Tengu, he cried. The priest studied the sword as if he'd never seen one before. Tengu, he parroted. Yes, all over the mountains. It's crawling with them around here. They breed like demons, which is hardly surprising. I've not known one to draw a blade before. You're a curious specimen. Maybe a new breed, he held the ring out. Here, take it. Hold it. I won't. As proof. Proof to welcome you into our house, you and your horde. Horde? Horde, brood, den, nest, whatever it's called. A monastery, the priest suggested. What monastery? I've wandered all over. I haven't seen any monastery. Well, it's down there, far side of the waterfall. I'm surprised you didn't see it just now. Come over here to the ledge again, and I'll point it out to you. He turned and gestured toward the waterfall with his staff. The moment he did, Anto leaped up and ran for his life across the mountain. What a fool that old Tengu was, if he imagined Ando would just walk to the precipice. Demons! They might be everywhere, but they weren't very bright. Over dinner, he related to his aunt the perilous adventure that afternoon. She gasped as he described how the Tengu had tried to murder him. But the monster backed off, Auntie, when I drew my blade. My brave nephew, it's a wonder you aren't lying somewhere, a heap of broken bones, while I roam the hillside with a lantern, 
calling your name and surely drawing the monsters to me. What a horrible thought. She gestured for her servant to come and refill his plate. The important thing is you're here and you've a healthy appetite. We must keep you alive and well. I think you should not stray again. But my art, my painting, oh, you can set up outside and paint my house against the backdrop of our lovely mountains. I should greatly desire to have a picture of my house the way you see it. And you have to admit, it's a lovely view. Well, yes, he said grudgingly, lovely but nowhere near as inspiring as the waterfall. Please, Ando, humor me. Wait to go far. Wait till the leaves have turned on the trees. Then the whole mountainside will be alive with colors, and your painting will prove so much more dramatic when the snow comes. She reached across the table and cupped her hand against his cheek. He smelled her perfume, and his eyes rolled. Oh, she smelled like no woman he knew. She was so lovely. As you wish, he sighed. Good, my nephew. I needn't worry about you then. With that settled, they spoke pleasantly of his life in the city, of his parents and his aspirations. Aunt Sakura plied him with good sake, and he by turns became more and more loquacious. He confessed his desire to be a great artist, and even admitted that he thought she was the most beautiful aunt anyone had ever had. She did not rebuff him, but smiled demurely, took his hand, and bid him tell her everything, which he surely must have done, although he was too inebriated to remember. Finally, she disengaged from his embrace. He did not recall when he had wrapped his arms about her and said that she was tired. "'Go to bed now, sweet nephew,' she told him. With wounded dignity, he wove an unsteady path down the hallway, which seemed to go on forever. He wished she were coming with him, but he couldn't think enough to turn around and invite her. Somehow he stumbled into his room and collapsed face down on his mat. He resisted the urge to fall asleep until he'd undressed. Rising up onto his knees, he drew off his haori coat, then fumbled with the knot of his obi while the room tried to pitch him. Something thumped on the mat between his knees, and he squinted at it for some moments before realizing that it was the iron ring he'd tried to throw away. His brow furrowed. How had he acquired it again? He couldn't recall, but he was certain the big-nosed goblin hadn't touched him. It's cursed is what it is, he muttered, then giggled at the idea. He dropped his haori over it, and then, dressed in his yukata, sprawled across the bed. Lovely, lovely auntie, he sighed, and his eyes closed. That night, whatever he dreamt, it remained submerged beneath the vat of sake between his ears. Upon awaking, his head hurt so terribly that he couldn't even contemplate nightmares and goblins. A different girl led him to his bath. This one appeared no less dull, but she conversed hardly at all. He wondered where his aunt found such vacuous servants. Perhaps on the mountain there was little to spur the intellect, and over time the denizens became stupid, passing their dullness down the line like the color of their eyes. He did not wish to become so empty, and charged himself to start painting right away, the moment he overcame his hangover and could open his eyes to the daylight again. Tomorrow. His aunt cooed over him, her voice and touch so soothing. She spoon-fed him, and then put him back to bed. Ando passed many weeks in his aunt's house. In the morning he was bathed and fed, then as the day warmed he would sit either on the open porch and paint the valley view or under the trees and paint the house against the mountains. Initially he thought his brushwork quite acceptable. His aunt complimented him on everything he did and encouraged him to continue. As the weeks passed, he found he could look back at his first pieces and see that he had tried to capture too much detail instead of expressing it through the simplicity of lines, the sweep of his brush. Every time he showed her a new illustration, Aunt Sakura crowed to the servants that her nephew was the finest asset the mountain had ever seen. She rewarded him with treats, with meals that approached feasts. His appetite, like his brushwork, seemed to grow daily. At one of these meals, he commented, I think before I paint the mountain, you will have fed it to me. She laughed and pinched his cheeks. Ando never tried to throw away the ring again, but kept it hidden beneath his mat. He seemed immune to its evil influence. He ceased dreaming altogether, but rested in dark slumber, weighted down by rich food. Over time, he forgot about that capricious monk. His aunt's serving staff seemed to grow throughout the summer. He encountered new people every day. Some ignored him as they polished the floors or arranged the stones in her garden. Others paused in their duties to nod and smile. They kept to their end of the house, the back end of the house. It must have been full of servants' quarters. 
When he asked his aunt, she said, Oh, they're helping me prepare for the harvest festival. Didn't I mention it? In a few days, I shall have a great party for many of our neighbors. So I am preparing the house. You will be the star of our celebration. Your paintings I'll put on display, and I promise you, everyone will admire them. You'll be the most important person on this mountain, dear Ando. He nodded agreeably, his mouth too full of rice cake to speak. The air was brisk that night. Ando noticed that the leaves had turned color. Looking out from his porch the next rainy morning, he realized that the whole valley and the mountains opposite were aflame with color. He'd been painting the transformation daily, and it shocked him to discover that he hadn't noticed. His waterfall would now be bursting with color. It was the view he must paint. He was certain of that. It existed to test his skill to forge him. Surely after so long he could go there untroubled by the monstrous monk. If it hadn't been raining, he would have gone right then. When he mentioned it to his aunt, she replied, Are you certain that's wise? It's not very far, just the other side of the mountain. It's so beautiful. Besides, no Tengu have been around in all these months. When he said Tengu, she blanched. Not far, but far enough away that you'll be out of my influence, she said. I wouldn't be able to intervene if anything should happen to you. Nothing will happen, auntie. I have my sword. Oh, surely you're right. Still, what would I tell your parents if anything should happen? his parents. He'd almost forgotten that he had any. He was so safe, so happy here, that the thought of returning to the city nearly repulsed him now. Ando convinced himself that his aunt had bestowed her blessing on his going to paint the waterfall, if only reluctantly. But the next morning it rained even harder. Mists curled across the tops of the far mountains like dragons. The landscape seemed ghostly behind the torrent, beautiful enough in itself to warrant painting. There was, he assured himself, always tomorrow. It rained the next day, and the next, and showed no signs of ever letting up. The valleys must be filling up like lakes, he thought. He became edgy. He couldn't work. Oh, the view was spectacular, but it wasn't the view he wanted. The colors would begin to fade soon. There was nothing here left to paint. He'd captured as many views from her balcony as every artist in history had ever done of Mount Fuji. He decided that rain or no rain, he must go to that precipice and at the very least gaze upon it, memorize it, let it soak into him like this rain until every detail burned in his mind. If need be, he would carry it back with him and paint it here. He intended to tell his aunt of his going, but couldn't locate her. He didn't wish to ask one of the queer servants where she had gone either, so without a word to anyone, he stole a straw mino that was big enough to protect him and a pair of geta to keep him high enough off the ground that his kimono wouldn't drag through the mud. Walking might be more clumsy, but he would manage. He poked his head through the rain cape, slipped over the edge of the balcony, and hurried off into the rain and mist. He glanced back, but no one appeared to have seen him depart. After a few minutes, he lost sight of the house. The rain stopped. It happened so abruptly that he looked up, expecting to find a roof over him. There was nothing but cloudy sky. Back in the direction from which he'd come, the rain inexplicably continued to fall. Ando clambered on across the mountainside until he heard the roar of the waterfall again. Eagerly he approached the precipice, but also with more effort than he remembered it taking to get there. Then he stood and beheld an explosion of colors more beautiful than he could have imagined. The trees everywhere burned like flames, more subtle and varied than he could hope to represent. To himself he muttered, We can only speak of nature. It was all he could do to stand and behold, to drink up the scene that he must later try to express. The waters poured down, glistering through rocky channels, green and brown with moss, and erupted at the bottom so far below him in a spectrum of spray. Staring through the rainbows, he saw, on the far side of the gorge, the walls and peaked roof of a structure, one that could have been a distant monastery. A sense of unease settled upon him. He hadn't noticed such a building the last time, but the last time he had not seen with today's eyes, which had developed more perception in the intervening months. He would have called it an artist's vision then, but no longer. He had come to realize that he was forever a student. He would strive to be an artist his whole life, growing but never grown. His former ability to see was as a charcoal sketch to this vision, as this would be to a future gaze. He began to understand why someone would paint many versions of one view. Each day, one's eyes were as new as clouds. Hardly daring to blink, Ando sat upon the flat rock and stared. 
He found moments, light flashing in the cascades, the rainbows dimming as the sun slid behind a cloud, leaves falling listless, then perking up again at the breath of a breeze, too many moments to capture in one painting. But that was good. It wasn't until his skin prickled at the chill of being out of the sun that he realized a shadow had fallen over him, and he turned his head slowly, fearfully. His hand went to the hilt of his sword. Only a few feet behind him and leaning on the same wooden staff as before, the figure he had thought to elude contemplated him curiously. He was ready to draw the blade, but the orange-robed priest made no move toward him. "'Why, what sort of jolly fat fellow makes his way so far up the mountain unnoticed by me?' Bewildered Ando edged away from the precipice. The priest's gaze followed him. "'I must say you remind me of somebody.' "'And who would that be, sir?' asked Ando, as he continued to circle away from the ledge. "'There was a creature on this mountain, oh, five months back. A skinny goblin he was.' "'Skinny goblin?' "'Indeed. I'd given him a ring for my staff,' he flicked the remaining ones with a finger. "'Initially it was to ward him off if he was evil, or protect him if he was not. At first I couldn't be certain of him. I had my answer when I found him here the next morning preparing to fling it into the gorge.' I retrieved it before he could succeed, then slipped it back into his clothes before he noticed. I never saw him again, and so I think it destroyed him. It's surely lying in that haunted ruin where his family no doubt still wait to feast on my bones. He pretended to be a naïf from the city, so I hope yours is a different story, fatso. I pretended nothing, you villain. You tried to force me into the gorge. The priest blinked as he fathomed the meaning of this. Then his eyes went wide with shock. He shook his staff in a threatening gesture that drove Ando back. You! You look like this? How many hapless travelers have you preyed upon? I haven't preyed upon anyone. I'm staying with my auntie in the house where you accompanied me, only you wouldn't— He stopped, his brow furrowed. What do you mean, that haunted ruin? Take off that shaggy mino, ordered the priest. It isn't raining here. Ando pulled off the straw rain cape. The priest clucked his tongue. Oh, dear, they've fattened you up and you've no idea. I wonder how she did this. Her spell must have traveled all the way down the mountainside to find you even before we met. What are you talking about? I've been very wrong about you, very wrong. It's sheer good fortune I'm here. From the look of you, you haven't another week left. Nothing the priest said made sense to Ando. I'm not fat, he said, and looked at himself. I should have guessed, but you see, I thought you were Tengu and that I was to be your feast. When you invited me into her house, I was certain you'd arranged a trap for me. I am her fiercest enemy, after all. But no, 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 it was about you, poor fool. I will do penance for my pride later. Right now we must rescue you. Rescue me from what? Ando asked angrily. The priest swore. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Putting his staff at Ando's head, with a yelp, Ando hunched up in defense against the impending blow, but the tip halted just as it brushed his hair. In his terror, he suddenly saw himself as a bloated figure with sausage fingers and an enormous belly, 
Oh, Buddha, I'm huge! She didn't want you to encounter me, did she? Soon it won't matter, as you'll be nothing but bones anyway. How did I get like this? You ate yourself like this, idiot. She's been fattening you up for a banquet. Haven't you listened to a thing I said? From the looks of you, Tengu from all over this mountain will be attending to sup on your... Oh, my, yes. From all over. You know, I think I shouldn't rescue you after all. Not rescue me? She's planning a party, your aunt, isn't she? Her harvest festival, the priest chuckled. Harvest, she calls it. He gazed across the hillside. You still have the ring? It's under the tatami mat beneath my bedroll. The priest's gaze was so intent that Ando turned to see what was so absorbing, but there was nothing there. He kept watching, expectant. I never got around to showing it to Auntie Sakura. I thought it might upset her, he said. That's your good fortune, for she would have destroyed it, and perhaps you along with it. From now on, keep it with you all the time you're in the house. When the moment comes, take it from your obi and fling it down as hard as you can. When what moment comes? What do you mean? asked Dando. When he received no reply, he turned around. The priest had disappeared. In approaching the house again, Ando took care that no one saw him. A curtain of rain still fell around it out of a gloomy sky, and although he knew the rain was nothing more than a spell now, he could not break it nor see his true form any longer. Fear seemed to be the only way through her magic. On the porch, he removed the dripping rain cape and the geta from his feet and hid them. He dried his hair on his kimono sleeve, seated himself, took up his brush, and roughly sketched in the misty view of the mountains opposite, the dripping trees, the heavy clouds. Soon he was drawing the waterfall, capturing everything he could remember. The more he portrayed it, the more excited he became, the more lost in work, casting memory, obsessed with every line and smudge. In it, he forgot his peril. He heard his aunt's voice calling, "'Ando, whatever are you about? We have guests.' You must come and let them see you. He glanced around himself. The sky was growing dark. He hadn't noticed the time passing. They had guests now. He stiffened with fear. I'm... He concocted a hasty reply as he stuck his head into the hallway. I must change my clothes. I didn't know there were guests, Auntie. He heard her laughter in the words. I didn't tell him when the party would take place. Surprise is always best. Yes, he agreed. Surprise is best. He hurried to his chamber, removed his damp outer garments, replacing his kimono with a fresh one decorated with chrysanthemums. Then he knelt and reached beneath his bed mat until he touched the large iron ring. Remembering the priest's instructions, he tucked it into his sash, then stood, making sure it was hidden and secure. He considered taking his sword, but wearing it would arouse suspicion. His aunt awaited him. With her were a dozen people he'd never seen before. They might have been members of a single family. All were tall, with sharp noses and wide, dark eyes. They beamed at him as if overwhelmed with the pleasure of his company. Some nodded in satisfaction to one another. His aunt had set a place for him at the table with his favorite foods laid out along it. She came up to him and pinched his cheek as she liked to do, then turned to the guests and said, Delectable, isn't he? They all nodded in unison. Some clasped their hands. One licked his lips and muttered, Toothsome. "'What a fine job you've done with him!' proclaimed another. His aunt bowed with a compliment. "'Come, come, we must wait for the others,' she said. "'Others?' asked Ando. He tried to keep his voice from trembling. "'Oh, many more, yes. You'll see them all. I must go and tend the fire. We want it nice and hot on so cold and wet a day. Why don't you eat something, dear?' He started to protest that he wasn't hungry, but she'd already turned away. Left alone with the guests, Ando tried to keep to himself." The man who'd called him Toothsome came over and tugged at his sleeve. Pardon me, he said, drawing back the sleeve in order to push one finger into Ando's forearm. His head seemed to stretch forward on his neck as he watched Ando's flesh respond. His prominent nose quivered. My, you've taken such good care of yourself. Lovely skin. Pink. Barely able to keep from bolting, Ando stammered. Really? He held steady even when the man turned to a few others and said, Look! Look, as he poked some more. Auntie Sakura returned then. She parted the crowd. Dozens more followed in her wake, the grinning bath girls among them. The room was full now. I believe everyone's here, she said. And so, Ando, my dear, it's time to begin. The fire has warmed the other room. You should come along now. When the moment comes, the priest had said, and surely this must be it. Ando nodded to his aunt as if in compliance. She turned to go. The crowd's attention fixed upon her. They parted to let her pass. 
Ando drew the ring out of his sash and hurled it to the floor. It thumped loudly, bounced, and rolled in a half-circle before falling over on someone's foot. Everyone stared down at it. His aunt turned back. She looked at the ring, then at him, then at the ring again. "'Whatever is that?' she asked. One of the guests said, "'I believe a part of him fell off.' He had thrown down the ring. Where was the blinding flash of light? The explosion that destroyed them all? The great wind that whisked away their spells? Nothing had happened. Ha! <laughs> Ando nervously said as if it were all a mistake. His aunt bent over to pick up the ring. Before she could touch it, the foot against which it rested burst into flame. The guest screeched and jumped almost to the ceiling, kicking the ring into the air. It struck his aunt in the forehead. She fell back against the nearest guests. The other hopped madly about as flames climbed his leg. Those nearest him tried to beat out the fire. Everything changed. Auntie Sakura glared at Ando, only she was no longer his aunt. Her face was transforming. Her nose became something like a craggy beak. Her brows projected forward over her eyes, which had turned black and shiny as stones on a go-board. He prepared to dive under the table, but was stopped in his tracks as he beheld the feast she'd laid out for him. The rice had turned to maggots, the meat and seaweed to insects and worms, all alive and wriggling. Was this what he'd been fed all along? His stomach churned and threatened to heave. Before he could move, a hand clamped upon his shoulder. A claw, the fingers ribbed like a bird's talons. Swung about, Ando faced the creature who'd pretended to be his aunt. Her jagged mouth opened wide as if she were about to bite him in half. Then from the very back of the room a head came sailing over the crowd. It bounced off another guest and landed on the table, rolled along, spilling dishes, and finally dropped to the floor, where it spun slowly at his aunt's feet. It was a black head, leathery, feathered, and horrible. It looked up at her and clacked its angry jaws. She shrieked, and Ando joined her in screaming. He tore loose from her grasp and threw himself against the nearest guests in the hope of reaching the door. The ghastly creatures sprawled every which way, and Ando fell with them. The room rippled as layers of spell were shed. Behind him a bright light appeared. It was the ring, finally behaving as he'd expected. The guests staggered as he scrambled on hands and knees through them. They had their arms up to ward off the severed heads that were flying about like bees. He lunged for the doorway, but it was jammed with fleeing guests. A head dropped between his hands and immediately tried to bite his fingers. Ando sprang away into the corner. The crowd ran about in a frenzy toward one exit or another. Some right through the walls, shot up on geysers of blood. None of them looked human any longer. Behind them he glimpsed quick flashes of light. The goblin who had been his aunt found him through the crowd and charged at him. You, she screamed, you're the cause of this. He cringed against the post at his back. Her talons snipped the air in front of his face. Then, like a line of lightning, a blade flashed across her throat and her own grotesque head toppled from her shoulders. The body crumpled upon it, covering the cold, black stare of her eyes, but the head continued to hiss from beneath it like a wet log thrown on a fire. Behind her stood the priest in his orange robes, streaked now with dark blood. He held a slender sword instead of his staff. Other monks, like him, all armed, continued to slaughter the remaining goblins. Their actions were lit by the great fire, burning where the next room had been. The house had become a ruin. This was where Ando had been living all these months. The walls were broken and rotted. Screens hung in shreds. The furnishings were blackened and moldy, as from an old fire, and grass poked out the crumbled weave of the mats. A few of his sketches blew like dead leaves through the open corridors. Over the fire stood a spit big enough for... For him, Ando realized. My aunt, he said. My aunt was a Tengu. The priest patted his shoulder. I doubt it runs in the family. He wiped his sword on the sleeve of the goblin's corpse before sliding it back into its sheath. Truly, she was not your aunt. Your aunt likely fell victim to this creature long ago. This spot, this ruin, has been haunted for many years now. Did you happen to send a letter to your aunt that you were coming? Ando nodded. Of course. A pity we missed the messenger, or we might have saved you much trouble. Yes, look what she's done to me. Grieve not, young man. Nothing has been done to you that cannot be undone. This time tomorrow you wouldn't have been able to say that. The Yamabushi monks had finished their gory work. They assembled behind the priest and observed Ando serenely. Gather up your belongings now and follow me. You may remain with us at the monastery until you shrink back to normal size. Ando waddled through the ruins, fully aware now of the difficulty of propelling his bulk. He collected his drawings, paintings, his supplies and clothes, 
and then came back. He stepped carefully over the slaughter. Some of the heads hissed at him and clacked their jaws as if to bite his ankles. Don't they die? he asked. Depends on who you listen to, replied the priest. He'd retrieved both the ring that Ando had thrown down and his staff, and now fitted the ring onto it again in some clever and seemingly magical way. He said, Some people even believe they turn themselves into monks. Well, that's one way to believe the best of yourself. Magic. So, on to our second story. It's a haunting piece by Leah Bobbitt called Lost Wax. Leah's first novel, Above, was nominated for the 2012 Andre Norton Award and the 2013 Aurora Award. Her short fiction has appeared in several years' best anthologies and as part of the online serial Shadow Unit. She lives in Toronto, Ontario, where she edits idiomancer speculative fiction, picks urban apple trees and works as a bookseller at Back of Phoenix Books, Canada's oldest science fiction bookstore. Leah's second novel, On Roadstead Farm, is a literary dust bowl fantasy where stuff blows up, and it will appear from Clarion Books' Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in 2015. Her website can be seen at leahbobbit.com. The story is narrated by Bob Roddis. Bob is a voice actor, musician and marketing advertising guy. His migration into voice acting began two years ago, but his roots started in 1967 as a classically trained pianist. To his parents' chagrin, his musical tastes moved into blues and rock and roll. And yes, he was a wedding singer at one time. He currently is the keyboard player with the Southside Exiles. Performing was and continues to be in his blood. Bob currently resides in the Chicago area with his wife, daughter and a cat, who is just waiting for the chance to take over the house. Isn't that what all cats do? Anyhow, you can contact him or just plain hire him by going to his website, wordtomouthstudios.com. And here goes. Lost Wax by Leah Bobbitt In the factory at Calendar Point, the carvers and the wizards and the casters make magic. Simon sweeps up. The wax is carted in from beekeepers scattered across the country, each licensed and watched and reporting to the provost every season on the movement of their flocks. Simon washes the floors after the carters have come and gone. He helps carry the crates to the carvers sometimes and the book-dusty theoreticians, one sketching the sigils from diagrams on brittle parchment and the others taking knife to wax, molding them in three dimensions. He gathers the curls of spare wax from the floor and burns them in the fire that feeds the casting crucible. In the afternoons, Simon brings water to the potters, who paint clay carefully on the carved wax molds. In the evenings, he scrubs their wheels and tools, soaking them in water until his fingers wrinkle. He does not clean a casting crucible. That is Jan's work, stoop-shouldered and sure-fingered, and old as his grandfather was in the day the farm passed to his father and his own indenture began in truth. At the precise trembling moment between day and dusk, the sigils and guardians are cast. Wax puddles out of the molds, spreads across the catch basin, and molten metal is poured in its place. Simon never sees the finished product. He empties the catch basins one by one, pouring thick and lazy drops of wax into the reservoir. The magic is in the wax, he's heard them say. He is careful. He does not spill a drop. Come morning, the orders are delivered to students, wizards, kings, and rich men by couriers in dashing clothes of all colors, none ever the same. It would not do to identify a factory courier to footpads and thieves. Some days Simon thinks he might become a courier in Lord's livery, and when he thinks this he sweeps harder and harder until the factory shines like the moon. Jan watches him with even looks when this bright mood is upon him, and sends him away. Check the carver's floor one more time, perhaps empty the chamber pots, dust the lintel so the specks do not get in the molds. Jan is old and his hands are covered in soot. Simon does not get angry when he invents these tasks. It is a great honor to work at the factory. It is a great honor to carry its broom in your hands, for even brooms can be full of magic. Simon comes home at dusk, smelling of smoke and sweat and honest labor. He lets a room in a boarding house off Progress Square that was still Bearheart Square when he arrived, but people call it Progress already, and the old name is near forgotten. 
He eats in the kitchen there, simple clean country food a day or two paler from the long trip to bring it to calendar point, or from a street vendor when it is middle month or end month and his pockets hold a neat packet of coin. There is smoke in the streets and music. He practices his letters reading pamphlets pasted on walls or drifting through the streets, and dreams of attending lectures, of fairs bursting with wild animals and sleight-of-hand shows. He pays his rent and sends money home to his family to pay for his labor lost, and hoards the rest in a box beneath his bed against a lack of imagination for luxury. Every night Simon shuts his doors and pulls the curtain over his rounded quartered compass window and draws the curls of used wax from the stitching of his pocket. He comes home with pockets heavy with wax. They are torn and mended and torn again once his clumsy stitching wears away or breaks. He is too timid to ask the house laundress to mend them true. The boarding-house mistress and the herb lady do not watch him as he slips into his penny garret. They privately wonder over tea if he is smuggling opium or casting metals, and just as quickly dismiss those thoughts. Were Simon like a smuggler, he would not pay his rent in such small, well-fingered coins. The mistress's daughter fancies that he carries books, that he is a man of words and deep river thoughts, but she is of the right age to fill a silent young man's figure with ideas that were never there. Over gaslight, he melts the fragments into his wooden washbowl until they are soft and ready, and molds them close into the cloudy block that started off a finger's width, then a palm's width, then an imperfect factory standard size. The mistress's dishwasher does not report him. He knows all the ways to remove wax from wood, from stone, from cloth. It has taken him time to learn to carve wax. It is softer than wood and cannot be whittled. It is harder than dirt and cannot be molded. His rejects he burns in the crucible fires, ease back into the factory in bits and crumbled pieces. This time, he thinks, every time the block grows strong and whole, this time will be the one, and he wishes. The knife flicks, and he whispers the words into the cracks made by his tiny fingernail blade. Give me a better life. Bring me a better life. Bring me something, a sign, a hope. The grayish wax breathes and sighs, but there is no smell of magic just a faint hint of rotten rosemary from the street where the herb lady has dumped her unsold and unsellable wares. Simon taps it with a finger, and it does not reach out, or speak, or scowl. Leftover magic, defective and drained. The wax used before casting is buttery and soft golden and smells like the best breakfast you never had. The bed creaks, and his hand trembles, and the house shifts on his foundations in its sleep. Simon puts his half-formed sigil in the drawer beneath his holiday clothes and sleeps in dreams of candlelight. Simon sweeps the factory floor as a long afternoon moves on, shifting shadows so he is never sure which planks he has caressed with a straw broom and which left untouched. He stares at the curling shards longingly, treasure and firelight around his feet. The guards will collect his dustpan at the end of the morning. He has never dared palm even a sliver of virgin wax. The penalty in the bindings they would place on his hands and the shame he would place on himself for having to beg again for a position is too great. But the wizards who watch the factory and grounds do not clap him in irons for seditious thought. His mind is filled with lake stillness. Jan sees through it, sees past it, and takes the broom from him. He sends Simon to wash the potter's tables again, six hours ahead of normal, and threatens the whip if there remains a speck of gray upon the polished, varnished, scarred wood tables. Simon inhales clay dust that coats his tongue and throat, smoke from the kilns, smoke from the crucibles in the sheltered room next door. The air in the factory tastes like something tangible, not alive, but perhaps conscious. The sound of the whistle that calls end today's work knows that it has a name. Today they call his name only to his ears. Today they murmur to him, and nobody else hears. But the wizards on duty frown and tap instruments, smell the air, consult their heavy necklaces and pocket-watch chains of charms, their good clean bowler hats just slightly askew. Simon Lake. Simon Lake meanders through his consciousness. The shards in the dustpan spell it out. The dust on the tables vibrates with it, and when he pours the day's wax from the catch basin into the reservoir, it hits with a note that reminds him of his own voice raised in laughter or anger or debate. Magic is everywhere you look for it in the factory. It is the motion of the air. At shift's end, Simon follows the air and the whistle and the dustkin out the door and into the streets of the city. Steam trains run into the stockyards, and he smells the low moaning of cattle imported to the slaughterhouses for meat and leather. Farmers' carts rattle along the roads, bringing in the produce to be sold at market the next morning. The sound stirs memory in him, and the urge to flee to ground. Sweaty and dirt-smeared men laugh and joke along the streets, leaving jobs at other factories, ones that make more mundane things. He sees them, and he sees what he might be in ten years, or twenty. 
Martin shudders. Why did you come to the city? A keening, whispering voice asks. Simon looks around, but there is nobody there to speak so clean and fairly. Nothing but the wind. His heart quickens. Perhaps it is a wizard voice. Perhaps he has been chosen for a great task. Perhaps it is his sign. I came, sir, he tells it, clearing his throat as if addressing the foreman, <clears throat> to gain a better life. And have you found it? Ask the cobblestones, and the spaces between them, ground with manure and dust and grass seeds. He clutches his hands in front of his body, tighten one another. He has a room in hot potatoes with cheese on payday. He is paying off his indenture to the soil. The house mistress's daughter seems to like him. His parents, if not proud, are not disappointed. He shakes his head. I've taken wax, he confesses, not knowing to who, but knowing he should. He must be honest now. If I had magic, there is magic in a bear's heart, so the name has been erased. There is magic in a falcon's claw clutched at the moment of dying. There is magic in things and not just symbols, it whispers, and he listens. Factory magic is not your kind of magic. Then what shall I do, he whispers, his carving hand growing stiff from tension. We have been looking some time, it says, pondering and sweet, for a vessel, a mold, a thing well-designed and willing. Are you willing? it asks, and he draws in a breath. Yes, he says, elated and terrified and strung tight with delicious vindication. His sign is here at last. Oh, yes! Look to where the things are still, the murmur says, tasting of sweet peas at first picking in old blood and sunshine. You will find your advancement there. A pair of beat cops come around the corner, one twirling his baton idly, chattering away to the other. Simon closes his mouth, shoves his hands in his pockets, and makes his long way home to Progress Square vowing in his head to call it Bear's Heart Square forevermore. There are a lot of stillnesses in his head. It is why he is permitted to work in the factory. He spreads out on his mattress that night and dives into them, dives deep. There is no magic there. His dreams are of floorboards and rafters and shaped square things. He dreams in symbols and metal and wax, and when he wakes, he weeps. He touches his knife to the wax that night and whispers new words into the scores and cuts and careful curves. Give me magic! Let me touch magic. That is not the way, the hissing voice of wild magic whispers, but it is the only way he knows. The knife slips, draws blood, and he bandages the finger and keeps going. The night falls silent, and he carves until dawn. Simon goes to the factory sleepy-eyed and haggard. There is wax beneath his fingernails, and he does not notice or care. Jan takes him aside immediately and sends him to scrub and chastises him loudly for not doing so the night before. Simon knows he is trying to help. Simon knows he is trying to save his job and his prospects. He scrubs with a knot of resentment building in his belly and comes out to report sullen and with his eyes downcast. Jan takes him into the potter's room where the workers have not yet come in for the day. What, he asks, has happened to make you so prickly and careless? There is no magic in me, Simon whispers, realizing that Jan has known all along about his small thefts of wax, about his yearning and sleepless evenings, and clenches his fists tighter. There is no magic in anyone, Jan says, severe, drawn-faced. They just borrow it for a while. Simon looks down at the older man's hands curled around the broom like a falcon's claw at the moment of dying. We could make it, he says. We could make our own and get out of here. It spoke to me, he says, and Jan holds up a hand. Magic isn't to be wanted. Magic is to be feared, he says, soft, between the murmuring creaks of machinery and the shouts of vendors in the city outside the factory gates. Anything that must be chained to serve will destroy you, and anything worth chaining to serve can do the job right and full. Simon looks at his feet at the unraveling leather shoes that they gave him on his first day at the factory. He did not know Jan felt himself a philosopher. Wizards, he says, wear fine suits and cast spells to their own design. They pay in gold. I've seen their houses, and he has. Everyone who lives or dwells a while in Calendar Point has seen those graceful, towering spires, and their children. They never frown, except when they're thinking of something terrible and great. Jan is silent for a long time. Sometimes I forget how young you are, he says roughly, and puts his curled and ruined hand on Simon's shoulder. He pulls away. He leaves the factory, his broom still in the cubby. He goes into the stockyards, into the sewers, into the streets, looking for somewhere that is truly still, and by nightfall he is truly lost. Darkened buildings rise above him like forest trees. There are no gaslights on these streets, and there are no signs. 
and no smells to light his way to somewhere cleaner and bigger and less secret. Magic? he calls out, not knowing it by any older or other name. Simon Lake, it murmurs, heady and hesitant. What is it you truly want? Magic, he says again, closing his eyes. I don't want to be a farmhand anymore. I don't want to be a cleaner. I want to be like them, the people who are always smiling. You want to be special. You want to inspire fear or hope or doubt. I want to be an honor, he says, and the words come formal to his lips, and for the first time he is very afraid indeed. But the wanting is stronger. The wanting is always stronger. To be more than one is, to be great, to be the cause of something. The wild magic smells that, and despairs, and rejoices. Very well, the magic says, grim and sad and ready. Very well. Simon lifts his head up to the sky, opens his mouth and his arms, closes his eyes. Come in, he cries out to it, voiceless, all the lake stillness gone forever from his mind. Come in to me. The world rushes into flame and light. The mages find him at sunrise, legs deer quick, ears wolf sharp, only his eyes still his own. They bring him before the wizard magistrate, who looks upon him and calls him Simon Lake, who works in the factory, in honor that who rents off Progress Square. They find his hoard of pennies, and they find his hoard of wax, half-carved into trees, into civic fountains, into the houses of the great and the small animals that haunt the lake country, stealing corn and nuts and fruit. The boarding-house mistress watches the wizards with eyes round as a rabbit's, and her daughter cries. The herb lady nods as if some great mystery is resolved, and flirts with the inspector, and is turned away back to her tea and wares. There is no trial. There never is with magic involved. They hang him at high noon, and the wild magic whispers in his ear, Hush, hush, as the trap opens and the knot tightens and his legs kick in the air. The papers say hangings are a quick death, the knot striking one just so and the suffering brief. Simon strangles slowly as the good wives and children watch. His hands clench like those of a dying falcon, and his bear's heart bursts, and the blood bubbles at his mouth before they cut him down and pronounce him. This call out the street preachers, the dervishes, the mad, is why it is foolish to toy with stolen magic. This is how you lose your soul. The crowd wails and shudders in terrified glee. A few young ones turn away, lips twisted. A few more of them follow the wind that might have otherwise. Cobbler's boys and shop clerks and a heavy young woman who bastes fine gowns together for the third best seamstress in the city. They dream of bees that night and wake up hungry and do not go to hangings any more. They meet and marry and open up public houses and greenhouses and places where things are still, and they allow no man-made magic in their homes, and they never speak of this day. They mark their doors with a sprig of rosemary for remembrance until they forget what it means or who hung their cutting first. Nobody who writes in decades to come about the rosemary revolution speaks of this day or this hanging. It is forgotten by its own historians. It sleeps in peace, and it is still. His parents come for his body, his mother weeping, his father's face hard as cobblestone streets. They bury him on the farm and plant an apple tree atop the grave. Roots twist down and empty his coffin of those things that fall away in earth, leaving good hard apple wood and bone in the shape of a man, a young man, one barely past his fifteenth birthday. The substance drains out of him, dirtied and spent into the catch basin of the soil, and something else fills the gap that is left behind. The apple tree bears bewitching fruit. Those who bite into it go a little mad for a while. They smell things that are not there. They see things that have never graced the lake country, machines and dirty streets and the way a night sky looks through haze and smoke. They mostly go to the city. They stay in certain public houses. They eat fruit from certain greenhouses. They make friends and they do not visit home. They never quite fit into the lake country again after that taste. The apple tree cracks and falls, splitting into two at the touch of lightning. The children from the farms and the village crowd around it, all afraid to touch. The children are afraid of that spot. Already they do not remember why. The stump is uprooted, and they find the roots broken, the space between them cradling the shape of a man, the bones of a man poured out on the ground between them like lost wax after the casting. They split the mold, but there is nothing inside at all. It remembers brooms. It remembers that things should always be clean and clear and true. 
Falcon's claw bears heart, smelling of apples and rain and moving like wind in purpose, takes its first steps towards the taste of the city. As I said before, haunting. And that brings us to the end of our show. Please remember that we operate under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. Share and enjoy, but don't change or sell. And if you like what we bring you, you can write a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, tell your friends and family about us, or just hire a plane to skywrite far-fetched fables rocks above your local downtown area. In the meantime, take it easy, keep smiling, and keep that favourite beverage close to hand. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.